0: Let's open to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, as we are challenged here by the Apostle to think about a biblical love test, or as he continues to bring to us various ways we can look at our lives and be assured that uh, we have passed from death to life. This theme of loving one another has been reoccurring. And so we hear it again this morning. 1 John 3 and verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's Righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love John is challenging us to think about how the love of God that has transformed us through the gospel ought to then also transform our relationships with others, primarily other believers in Christ. And he is challenging us here in this passage to think about the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. So it's somewhat of a continuation of where we were Last week. And so you just bump up a little uh, backwards here to verse 8, verse 7, where John writes, Little children, do not deceive you, or excuse me, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whereas Christ is righteous, and we now have the righteousness of Christ gifted to us that gift of his righteousness, that righteous standing before God, is then to work itself out in practical righteousness in our lives. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So that last phrase in verse 10 is a transition from last week's passage to this morning's passage. And so last week we thought about how being reborn by the Holy Spirit through the gospel makes us partakers of the divine nature, and therefore something is fundamentally changed by God within us, and we now begin to live for God in a way that we were powerless to live for him prior to our salvation. And so John makes it clear that this fundamental change in the posture of our heart before God results in progressive sanctification or progressive growth in righteousness. That's why he uses this phrase, makes a practice, or keeps on sinning. John is not saying that we as believers do not continue to struggle with sin. He's also not even saying that we as believers may find ourselves trapped in patterns of sin whereby we need to help one another. We need to come alongside one another in compassion and grace and patience to help one another uh, get victory over certain sin struggles in our lives. But what John is saying is that a believer in Jesus will not be able to continue to live in sin. That there is a change that the gospel brings about in our lives that the holy spirit through the word of god brings about and that then results in growth in righteousness but he says it also results in a change of our heart posture toward one another as believers nor is the one who does not love his brother he says in verse 10 and then he goes right into where we are this morning for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning this is not a new message Throughout Scripture, God has commanded us to love one another. And now we have the power to do so because we have been changed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So there is this obligation that we see in verse 11 that we should love one another. So the whole point of this passage can be really encapsulated in a version of verse 14 so this is the big idea this morning that is that we know we have passed from death to life because we love other believers this is another of the tests that the Apostle John is bringing to us in his letter to give us assurance of our salvation we have assurance of salvation we know we have passed from death to life if we see in our lives a love, a supernatural love for other believers. Something that goes beyond what the world can do for others. But there is an internal affection. There is a unity. There is a oneness that we experience with one another. We have passed out of death into life, John says in verse 14. We know this. Those first two words in verse 14 are really important. We know, in other words, we can be assured of our salvation if this is true, that we love the brothers. If you remember back in September, we spent six weeks going through a series called The Bridge to Eternal Life, and there was this image uh, that we reflected on That God was on one side and we are as sinners on the other side and there's this massive chasm of sin between us. But God has bridged that chasm through the work of Christ, through the cross. And so when we as sinners come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, we then pass over from death to life. And John says, if that is true of us, then one of the things that will be present is a love For other believers. So that's our central thought, the big idea of the passage. But then we see two obligations that we have in order to make this a reality. Number one, recognize love for fellow Christians is evidence of being a reborn child of God. So John says, children of God are different than children of the devil, just as he said last week. In last week's passage, there is a change that God makes within us. And just as that change results in growing in practical righteousness, so that change also results in learning how to love one another. And he brings then this illustration from the Old Testament into verse 12. We should not be like Cain. So verse 11, we should love one another. But verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. So under the influence of Satan and as a child of the devil, in the context of what John is teaching us here, Cain murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and be reminded of that whole scene of the first murder recorded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. This accentuates for us the depravity of man that so early in the creation, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, murder entered the picture in their very own family. And the very first murder in the Bible is a brother murdering his brother. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So in other words, Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 11, Abel brought his offering in faith. Insinuating then that Cain did not. Well, what is faith? Well, biblical faith is a response to the word of God. Biblical faith is a response to the revelation of God. And so we can understand then in the context of all of this that God somehow revealed to Cain and Abel how to bring a sacrifice to him that was an acceptable sacrifice. And judging by the rest of scripture, we understand that a blood sacrifice was the only acceptable sacrifice when it came to sin. And so Abel, in biblical faith, responsive to the word of God, brought the firstborn of his flock. He brought an animal. That animal was offered to God. It was slain before the Lord. It was offered to him as a sacrifice. But Cain did not. Cain despised the word of the Lord. Cain despised the regulation of the Lord, the requirement of the Lord. He had a good enough for God attitude instead of an attitude that says, I will bring my best to God even if it costs me something. So Abel brought his sacrifice in faith. Cain did not. So God rejected Cain's offering. And what was Cain's response? It was not humility and not repentance. It was not a recognition that he had not faithfully brought to the Lord what God required. But instead, he became angry. And his anger even altered the countenance of his face. And I don't need to describe that because you know how that happens in your life and other people's as well. And so the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? God is giving Cain an opportunity here to repent. That's why he's asking the question. He's wanting Cain to come to understand that he did not follow the Lord faithfully according to his word. If you do well, verse 7, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you will follow my requirements, if you will obey my word, if you will act in faith, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you continue in your pattern of disobedience and pride and rebellion and refusing to walk in faith according to the revelation of God, then sin is crouching at your door. What a picture that is. What a word picture God gives to Cain that sin is right at your door crouching. And if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Its desire is for you. In other words, its desire is to master you. Sin's desire is to master you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In all the storybook Bibles that I'm aware of that I've read to my children over the years, there, there seems to be this um, picture, consistent picture of of Cain picking up a large rock and, and maybe beating his brother with this rock but this word killed is a brutal word it's a bloody word it's a slaying kind of word so we don't know all the gory details but there's enough gore in that word to know that this was a crime of passion anger hatred the complete opposite Of love. And John tells us then what was going on in Cain's heart when he killed his brother. He hated his brother. There was no love in his heart for his brother. But also, verse 12 says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The righteousness of his brother convicted his heart so plagued his conscience that instead of humbling himself before God he took out his anger and wrath upon his brother. Cain here is an illustration of the children of the devil that John mentioned earlier in the chapter. So John says we should not be like Cain We should not have hearts that are filled with hatred toward one another. We expect this hatred from the world, verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I always think it's kind of interesting, the the loud noise that Christians so often make in our culture because the world hates them as if there is some kind of right that we have to be treated a certain way. This is our right. If we're followers of the Savior who was crucified, if we're followers of the Savior who said, if the world hated me, it will hate you also, why is there so much pride in our hearts calling for some kind of expectation that is different than what the Bible says we should expect from the world. We ought not to be surprised that the world hates us. We should not be surprised that the world hates biblical Christianity, biblical moral ethics, biblical whatever. There's a hatred because they're following in the pattern of Cain. Cain had the same hatred for his brother because his brother was righteous. The world will hate us. Jesus said that. John guarantees it. We know, however, verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we are no longer of the world. If we have a different heart attitude toward people than the world has Whoever does not love abides in death So whoever claims to be a Christian and yet their life is not characterized by love for other Christians John is saying they didn't lose their salvation They never had it in the first place. They are abiding in death as they always have been abiding in death. But as the Holy Spirit changes us, we grow in love, and that's confirmation or assurance that we have passed over the bridge, the chasm. We've passed out of death into life. But everyone who hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now John learned this from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hatred equals murder. Now he wasn't saying that hatred equals murder in the sense of the consequences and the guilt and the punishment for each. But what he was saying is that Hatred is where murder begins. Murder always begins with hatred in the heart. And when we hate other believers, we are guilty in our heart of murder. We're guilty of having the seed of murder within our hearts. We may have the self-control to stop and not actually murder someone physically, We may be prevented by fear of punishment, fear of the death penalty, fear of whatever might enter our minds. But the seed is there, John says, if we hate one another. Now, he's also not saying that a murderer cannot get saved. But he's talking again in the present tense, verse 15, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, no one who is a murderer currently also has eternal life within him. But we know of murderers who were saved. The Apostle Paul is one of them. If you read the book of Acts, you understand that Saul, who was became the Apostle Paul was standing at the edge of the pit where Stephen was thrown and he was was holding the coats of everybody so that they could pick up the boulders and throw them down into the pit to crush the bones of Stephen. He was an accomplice to murder and yet God in his grace transformed him, saved him. But he was a murderer in his past. John is saying, you can't be a murderer in your present and still believe you have eternal life. And so we cannot have patterns of hatred in our lives for other believers and still be justified in calling ourselves a Christian. That's what John's saying. So you need to recognize love for fellow Christians is evidence of being a reborn child of God. That when God gives birth to a new believer, love will follow as a fruit of the Spirit. There's a second obligation that we see here, verses 16, 17, and 18. And that is this, replace selfishness and indifference with the Christ-like example of selfless sacrifice. We must replace this natural inborn selfishness that we were born with and this careless indifference that we sometimes have toward the needs of others. We must replace those with this Christ-like example of selfless sacrifice. By this, verse 16... By this we know love. This is the greatest proof of love. This is the greatest demonstration that God has ever shown that he loves us as sinners. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, the death of Christ and Him laying down His life for us is unique. It's unique from any sacrifice that God may call us to make in our lives because Jesus is the only sin-atoning Savior. His life is the only price that was acceptable to God for our redemption. But as He laid down His life for us in selfless sacrifice— So we are called to lay down our lives for one another in selfless sacrifice. And so it's natural to read verse 16 and then ask yourself, well, how? How, John? How do we lay down our lives for the brothers? I mean, certainly we cannot replicate the death of Jesus. We cannot add another sacrifice to Christ. Surely we cannot do that because his sacrifice is perfect and complete. How, John? Well, then he illustrates it for us in verses 17 and 18. He tells us how we lay down our lives for one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. It doesn't abide. So, what is your heart attitude and your heart response when you learn of other believers who have needs, unmet needs, in their lives? I'm not talking about uh, unmet greeds, but actual unmet needs. Do you say, I'll pray for you? And then maybe you do pray for them? Or do you think in terms of, God brought this knowledge of this need to me, to my attention, to my awareness, in order that I may do something with it, that I might meet it and maybe not i maybe I can't meet it fully, but maybe I can be a part of meeting the need. See sometimes we think, well, that need is too big, there's no way that I could meet that need, but you can be a little part of meeting that need. Remember when we were in in um, Kansas City. We lived there for about six years um, after we got married. And um, many of you know that four of our children were born with um, hearing disabilities. And um, so our oldest son, he was the first one that we were aware of that had um, an issue with his hearing. It took us a long time to diagnose what was actually going on and what his needs were. And then we found out the cost of hearing aids. And we had no insurance. And unbeknownst to us, our church that we were helping plant in Olathe, Kansas, they talked among themselves and they gathered the funds and they bought our son's first pair of hearing aids. And what a gift that was. What a need that met. And it was just one of so many ways that God has shown his faithfulness to us over the years. But that's an example of how a need was known and God's people met the need. Turn backwards to the book of James in chapter 2, James 2. We see James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he confronts this indifference that we are sometimes guilty of. In James chapter 2 and verse 14, James asks, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, is the faith of someone who only talks about being a Christian but doesn't actually live like a Christian, is that genuine faith? So he illustrates it for us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, verse 15, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the needs, the things needed for the body, what good is that? If, if you hear of a need within the body of Christ and you have the ability, the blessing of God to be able to to at least be a part of meeting that need, God wants you to do more than say, I'll pray for you. Be warmed. Be filled. God will take care of you. I'm sure of that. But don't you think that maybe the fact that you have knowledge of the need means that with knowledge comes accountability and that God somehow wants you to be a part of meeting that need? Yeah, somebody should meet that need. Somebody. Well, maybe you should put a name tag on your forehead that says somebody. Because if you know about it, then then maybe God wants you to be a part of it. At least you ought to consider it. At least you ought to pray about it. At least you ought to say, Lord, you've made me a steward. I actually own nothing in this life. I own nothing. You own nothing. But we are stewards of everything that God has given to us. So, Lord, as a steward, how do you want me to manage these resources? And and whose needs do you want me to be a part of meeting? It goes on to say then, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works is dead. In other words, if you just talk the talk but you don't walk the walk, James is saying the same thing that John is saying. There is no assurance for the Christian who just talks the talk but does not walk the walk. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is confronting, again, the same thing that John is gently confronting for us. And so we should be asking the Lord, Lord, make my heart more sensitive to other people and to the needs of other people. Guard my heart from this indifference, this this careless attitude that I sometimes have when I find out about the needs of other people. Little children, verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth so what is the whole point the point again is love is an evidence that we have passed from death to life love for one another so let us not simply love in word and talk yes we should say loving things to one another that's not what John is John is not saying don't say loving things to one another our, our speech ought to be loving, ought to be edifying to one another. But John is saying, don't stop there. But also love in deed and in truth. Put action on your words. Put feet to your love, John is saying, in deed and in truth or Sincerity without hypocrisy. I find it interesting that the, the number one analogy that the New Testament uses for the church is a family. And I love to see this family of God in action. Loving one another, caring for one another, accepting one another, meeting one another's needs. My wife and kids, we feel so loved here from the moment we came back in 2015. Loved, accepted, appreciated. And I don't want to ever take that for granted because not all churches are like that. At the same time, let's not become content with where we're at and say, well, we're a loving church. Aren't we great? (laughs) No, let's thank God for the work of grace that he has done and is doing among us. But let's also say, Lord, teach me to love. Change my indifference to compassion. Change my inactivity to action." May the world see that we know Christ because of our love for one another.